to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today, we have with us David Blass, a partner at Simpson Thatcher and the former chief counsel of the Division of Trading and Markets at the SEC. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Gary, it's a delight to be with you. And uh, I'm a frequent listener, first-time caller, so thanks thanks for having me (laughs) on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Can you start by telling us a little bit about your your background, you're one of those folks who have bounced back and forth between private practice and the SEC, and I'm sure folks will be uh, interested in hearing hearing your journey. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's not a typical journey. I, I have uh, uh, been in private practice. I've been in-house. I've been in government. Uh, so probably most relevant for your audience is what you mentioned before. I was uh, chief counsel of the trading and markets uh, division for, for old-timers. That's market reg. Uh, 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 that division is responsible for oversight of the uh, markets, um, the exchanges, but but also uh, uh, in that role, I was primarily responsible for determining who is and who is not a broker dealer, uh, and uh, uh, overseeing the the regulation of broker dealers. So, uh, de- definitely want to get into that. But you're right; I've had a varied career. I started off uh, my career uh, at a New York-based law firm. I ended up in their Frankfurt and London offices doing capital markets work. So I advise investment banks and issuers uh, raising raising uh, raising money. Uh, I was at the SEC twice. Uh, I started my career at the Trading Markets Division as a line staffer in the Chief Counsel's office. I moved to the Investment Management Division and ran what now is called the Private Funds Unit. Uh, and that's really the Advisors Act uh, practice within the Investment Management Division left for uh, uh, a short period of time during the great financial crisis. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, what, a, what a stressful event that was. Uh, but leading up to Dodd-Frank and the uh, developments after Dodd-Frank, the SEC uh, and Mary Shapiro, who was the SEC chairman at the time, called me back to be the Associate General Counsel for the SEC. And then I ended up moving over uh, as Chief Counsel of the Trading Markets Division. Uh, after my SEC career, uh, I was general counsel for a big trade association in, in Washington, D.C. called the Investment Company Institute, which represents the registered funds uh, industry uh, and had a great time there before before joining Simpson Thatcher uh, in about two, 2017. And I, I have a, a varied practice. I spent a lot of my time uh, advising asset managers, uh, especially private equity and venture capital managers uh, on broker dealer issues, on investment advisors that, uh, matters. And then uh, also have a number of clients, uh, either funds or uh, uh, boards in the registered fund space as well. Oh, okay. Is Investment Company Institute, is that a 501c6? Uh, Boy, you're going to stump me. I think it's uh, 501c3, but it might be 501c6. Oh, okay. As as general counsel of the ICI, you would think I would know that. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm general counsel, but uh, it is a not-for-profit. Uh, uh, it is a, an association that represents the industry. It has uh, hired lobbyists. It has a very robust research group, uh, but it is ultimately a not-for-profit. 
and, and whether it's 501c6, I, I suspect it is. Yeah, uh, 501c6 is, we, we, we briefly, rep, or I won't say briefly, for years, represented a uh, trade association started with uh, by a law school friend of mine. And there's antitrust considerations, right? Because you have competitors at the table and you want to make sure they're not slicing up the world like, you know, Portugal and who, who was it? Spain back in the day. 100% antitrust is a big concern amongst uh, trade associations like the ICI. And, you know, you can't talk about vendors or pricing, that type of thing. It's a big, big no-no. And, you know, the venture capital community obviously has a, a very um, robust uh, and, and more than one robust uh, trade associations for the for the space. So uh, you're well represented. Uh, uh, this, the the group that's listening is well represented in, in Washington D.C. And I find it's uh, you know the members, the engagement is always helpful both uh, to learn about what's going on in Washington, but really to meet the other members and have an opportunity to network and talk about issues of common interest. Trade associations are unique in their ability to give you those opportunities. So would encourage you all to uh, to plug in both to the ADA uh, and the, uh, the the venture capital uh, uh, associations in DC. Okay, great plug there. Well, let's get right into it. So let's talk about broker-dealers. So uh, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of the hallmarks of being a broker-dealer? Or I can, if, if you'd like, there are certain factors that folks, that folks look for. Yeah, well, who doesn't want to talk about broker-dealers, right? <laughs> uh, uh, so... Yeah, yeah. So from the, an SEC perspective, for decades, the SEC uh, has looked at uh, persons in the securities industry who facilitate purchases and sales of securities, and they look at those people and determine whether or not they're bro they need to be licensed as broker-dealers. And the hallmark of being a broker-dealer, according to the SEC, for, for decades and courts is the receipt of transaction-based compensation. So if you step back and look, you know, this is the ABA, so we should look at this from a legal framework. The, the, the test of being a broker-dealer is, especially being a broker, are you in, uh, engaging in the business of affecting securities transactions for others? And that, that definition has multiple elements. First of all, are you engaged in a business, which the SEC, like, more, you know, historically has looked for transaction-based compensation for engaged in the business. Are you affecting security transactions? Uh, that's really like playing an important role in the chain of a securities transaction. So not executing from a, a trade execution perspective, but putting buyers and sellers together. So the SEC can be enough to affect a securities transaction. And that is it for the account of others. Are you doing it for your own account or somebody else? Normally that's an easy one. Um, for all of these elements, these three elements, the SEC really overrides that with a transaction-based compensation overlay. And, you know, that we, we say that that's the hallmark of being a broker because in large part, not completely, but in large part, the analysis kind of starts and stops there. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting because there's all these other factors about, you know, you name some and then do you participate in important parts of a securities transaction like solicitation, negotiation, or execution? You know, do you hold any of the securities and the like? And I'll have clients say, you know, they'll find some factor test online. Uh, it'll have like eight factors and they say, hey, we've got seven. The answer is no. And the only one that's yes is transaction-based compensation. All Why right. are you telling me that we're under the broker dealer? And I'm like, it'd be much better if you picked out anyone other than transaction-based compensation. Precisely. Uh, if, you know, you know, in, in the in the PE and venture capital space, um, you, you'll have investor relations persons right. uh, who, will, who will be out soliciting investors for funds. 
And you know, the, there's an analysis that goes along with whether they need to be licensed with a broker dealer. Uh, and you start with, well, what's the compensation system? You know, if it's salaried and discretionary bonus that's not tied to specific capital raised, you know, that that to your point, uh, Gary, that that takes the transaction compensation factor off. And that really uh, uh, makes it a little bit easier to advise that you don't need to be registered or licensed with a, a registered broker. So we know that transaction-based compensation is obviously a commission. So if you're getting 5% of the offering, then that's going to be transaction-based compensation. What people will say is, oh, we're actually just giving people a percentage of equity because we don't want to, because we understand that they're not a licensed broker. So we're just giving them equity instead of cash. Does that work? Well, uh, compensation is not necessarily cash compensation. Compensation is compensation. So something the SEC would interpret compensation as something for value. And I would say equity is something for value. Mm -hmm. uh, the test is, is it contingent on a securities transaction? Mm -hmm. So if you're getting compensation for a successful securities transaction, that to the SEC is transaction-based compensation, regardless of the form of compensation. So I would say, Making the payment equity versus cash versus a car versus a house really doesn't matter. It's is it contingent on uh, that person of uh, uh, finding a, a, a buyer of securities uh, or not? You know, if, if you have somebody that you have uh, that you're providing equity, but they're getting that equity no matter whether they find a, an investor or not. That's something that's not transaction-based compensation. That is compensation, but maybe not transaction-based compensation. Yeah, to emphasize, uh, you mentioned success-based fee. So a success-based fee could be cash or compensation, correct? Yeah, could be cash, could be equity, could be any other form of compensation. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, to get on a different topic, do you know who wrote the lyrics to the Frank Sinatra song, My Way? Uh, who wrote the lyrics? Uh, I'm going to guess Paul Anka. Only Mary? because he is, <laughs> he is such an important figure in broker dealer land of all things. But, uh, but do I know that? I, I can't say I know that. Uh, now you do. It is Paul Inca. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the, in the scheme of, 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 uh, of somebody, a, a celebrity's life, it's kind of surprising that somebody of the ilk of Paul Inca would become famous for a broker dealer no action letter uh, of all things. And, and Gary, you know, I feel age whenever I talk about Paul Inca, because anybody who's listening right now who's under the age, I'm, I'm going to cut it off at 35, has no idea who we're talking about. Yeah, because to <laughs> me, it was my parents, right? Yeah, and they knew who Paul Inca was. I'd I mean, maybe when we were in the 70s, when I was growing up in our Buick, our cassette tape had like Paul Inca among some other ones, and that was my only, um, only exposure really to Paul Inca. And the, the Paul Anka no action letter, why don't you describe it real quick, David, if you can? Uh, so Paul Anka, uh, for those of you who are, uh, uh, as I said, under the age of 35 or so, was a famous singer uh, during the Rat Pack days. Uh, I want to say his famous song was Donka Shane, but I could be wrong about that. I, I was trying to look it up as we were talking. Um, uh, he was the equivalent, I don't know, like even to say Justin Timberlake, you know, the, the, that kind of ages me, even just to mention mention, mention him. So yeah, Bruno Mars, something like that, known for a yeah. good voice and good writer. The weekend, maybe uh, famous singer back in the day, and Canadian. Uh, uh, for all of you uh, Canadians listening in, uh, we'll give you a shout out. Uh, he was uh, approached by a Canadian hockey team who wanted to raise money, and they were doing it through a securities offering. 
and they wanted to use Paul Inca's extremely broad network of uh, family, friends, and uh, and uh, and fans uh, to solicit investors into the hockey team uh, securities offering. And Paul Anka was well advised uh, from, by somebody I don't know who, uh, and said, "Well, wait a second, you're you're going to be part of a solicitation of, of investors in a securities offering in the United States, uh, and that sounds like a broker dealer issue to us. So we need to think about whether you need to be part of a you know license with a broker dealer if you're going to do this." So uh, Paul Anka wrote a, into the staff of the SEC a request for no action relief. No action letters are very important in SEC uh, legal, uh, the SEC legal world. These are uh, informal staff statements that say, based on these facts, if you do what you're saying you're going to do, we will not recommend enforcement action. Well, Paul Anka's facts were he was going to allow the hockey team to use his uh, network of, uh, of contacts. Uh, the hockey team would, would uh, uh, reach out to them, solicit, solicit them. Uh, for investments, and, and Paul Anka would receive compensation for the, inve- the uh, amount you know, tied to the amounts of investments that were being made into the hockey team securities offering. Paul Anka's uh, role was very limited. He was really passive. He was making his, I'm going to age myself again, he was Rolodex available uh, to the securities team. For those of you youngsters, that's your contact file, I guess. Um, yeah, and- a, few, a few years ago, I was moving into a new apartment and I had a uh- uh, I hired somebody to help me unpack and organize, right? And it was this young, young lady. She was here in New York City to be an actress. And anyway, my um, and you always have that box that you carry from a place to place, right? That so I was finally time to clear out that box. I had my old college Rolodex in there, and she yeah. saw the Rolodex and was like, "Wow, a Rolodex! <laughs> I've heard about these, but I've never actually seen one in person before." <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and, and don't get her t- uh, to, to to try the rotary phone. If she ever tries to try yeah, the right. rotary phone, that'll that'll that'll, that'll yeah. confuse her completely. Well, yeah. you know, so Paul Anka made his Rolodex, his uh, his contacts available. The hockey team uh, wanted to use them to raise money and pay Paul Anka. Uh, the staff ended up issuing the no action letter saying, if you allow the hockey team to use your contacts, even if you get paid uh, compensation for that, uh, and 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 some of your contacts invest in the hockey team securities offering. We won't recommend enforcement action to, uh, to the enforcement division of the SEC based on those facts. And that no action letter is available for people who are not Paul Anka uh, to rely upon and, and as established get what we interpret as guidance on what uh, what it means to, to be part of a securities capital raise, but not necessarily required to, uh, to register or be licensed with a broker dealer. Many people refer to the, the folk who stand in Paul Anka's shoes as finders. There is no exemption from broker-dealer registration for finders per se. What you're really doing if you're trying to uh, hire a finder is interpreting whether or not they fall within the meaning of the term broker uh, as, as defined under the Exchange Act. And that's the definition that I read out before. Right. And the issue is, if you're not Paul Anka, it's really hard to pull off. He didn't call anybody or anything like that. It was just the hockey team calling people. Hey, Paul Anka said I could call you up and ask you to invest my thing. If they, you know, somebody calls, hey, Gary Ross told me to call you up. They'd be like, huh? (laughs) So uh, I I would take the call, Gary. uh, But but you're right. Uh, If if Gary, if you are the one calling 
in saying, hey, you know, you're 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 my my friend. I, I want you to invest in the securities offering. That's a problem uh, right. if you get transaction-based compensation. In particular, um, there's one uh, enforcement action that your audience uh, should know about against a, a poor private equity shop, but it applies equally to venture capital called Ranieri Partners, R-A-N-I-E-R-I, Ranieri Partners. Ranieri Partners was raising funds, had a, had a fund launch, and it was raising capital for the fund and hired purported consultants to go out and find investors for the fund and paid them transaction compensation. Well, the SEC brought enforcement actions against the consultants for operating as unregistered broker-dealers, but also brought an enforcement action against Ranieri Partners for causing the un the unregistered broker dealer activity by paying them transaction based compensation, uh, Ranieri Partners ended up uh, sanctioned by the SEC and enforced. Charged the company as well. Charged the company. That's right. Wow. The, the, the manager of the fund for for paying the consultants a form mm -hmm. of compensation that caused them to need to be registered broker dealers, but they weren't. So the, they charged the unregistered broker dealers and Ranieri Partners, the advisor to the fund for causing those unregistered broker dealer violations. Because a lot of people say, hey, so what if they're not an unlicensed broker, you know, if it's the company or the fund that's raising. And I try to tell them that, well, if you use an unlicensed broker, then that could affect your Regulation D exemption and you could lose your right. exemption and that's it. But and then they're always like, well, I'm willing to I'm willing to risk that. They really think, oh, really, the burden is on the broker. But according I mean, this no action, this enforcement action proves that that's not the case. And a company or a fund is at risk if they use an unlicensed broker. And I think you're very uh, uh, it's very appropriate to point to the Reg D, the bad boy provisions you could end up sanctioned by the SEC in a way that disqualifies you, you and your funds from being able to rely on Reg D, which would be very disruptive. Mm -hmm. uh, amongst the parade of horribles, there's a separate tail risk, which is the Exchange Act has a provision that says any contract entered into an, in violation of the Exchange Act is void. Courts, in some circumstances, have read that provision to say any sale by an unregistered broker-dealer, if the person was supposed to be registered by uh, as a broker-dealer, any any transaction involving an unregistered broker uh, can, can be rescinded. Uh, now, that's an extreme measure. Usually, courts, when they do that, it's in equity, uh, and there's usually other bad facts like right. you know, high-pressure sales tactics, uh, fraud, but you always have to have in the back of your mind that you might be giving rescission rights to your investors if you use someone who should be registered as a broker-dealer, but is not. Uh, so it's an important area to get right. The more realistic issue is more on the regulatory sanction side with the SEC having an interest, but there is this tail risk that, that you have to account for. And, you know, if investments go bad, people tend to want to get their money back and they look for ways right. to do it. That is one way to do it. <laughs> Yeah, some people might say, oh, rescission rights, that's not so bad because this investment's going to go really well. We're going to have all this money. We're going to have millions. Yeah, sure. Then it won't be any issue. And, uh, you know, odds are nobody's going to exercise their rescission rights if the investment goes well. <laughs> Don't you, you always go into a capital raise with optimism. There, there's no way to do it with pessimism. But, so, right. but, but you do have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. I'd like to talk about another no action letter, the M&A broker no action letter, uh, which, no. oh, it, 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 you know what, uh, David, before I get to that, um, a former partner of mine used to say all the time that she wasn't sure that the SEC would issue the Paul Anka no action letter now. Uh, 
she felt like that was something that they had issued and they wouldn't. What's I mean, your your time at the SEC is after that. How did people there feel about it? Well, I think uh, the, the the way the SEC staff thinks about calling the letters that it's been overinterpreted. So I, I don't know that I agree that they wouldn't issue the, no, the Paul Lincoln no action letter. I think what the staff of the SEC would say is people um, often interpret the Paul Lincoln letter for more than it stands for, which mm -hmm. is I'm making my contact file available. You go reach out. You, the, the securities issuer, go reach out to these people. I'm not going to do it. People interpret more uh, from the Paul Lincoln letter than is written. Um, so, I, I, you know. Who knows if the staff at any particular time would, would be open to issuing a letter or not. Uh, letter practices wax and wane at the SEC. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think the SEC staff uh, really objects at all to the content of the Paul Inca letter. I think what really they would object to is, is the interpretations that they believe stand for more than the Paul Inca letter that uh, actually stands for. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. Let's talk about a new action letter that you authored during your time at the SEC, the M&A broker new action letter, which I believe was done in consort with the uh, a few fine attorneys at the American Bar Association, the business law section, um, on the Faith Coalition, some others. Uh, what, why don't you tell us a little bit about the circumstances around that and what that letter, what that letter stands for? Sure. So M&A broker, that stands for Mergers and Acquisition Broker is one of the few exceptions to the general rule that you can't receive transaction-based compensation. In the context of the facts laid out in that letter, you can receive transaction-based compensation without registering with the SEC or the broker dealer becoming a general member. The context leading up to that letter was, we were approached many, many times with facts that, hey, you know, I've got this transaction, I'm advising uh, a party to a, uh, an M&A transaction, and we're not sure if it's going to be an asset sale or a securities transaction. If it's an asset sale, I can get transaction-based compensation without the need to be a broker-dealer because that's an asset sale, it's not a securities transaction. If instead it's an acquisition uh, of a company instead of the company's assets, I can't get the same compensation. And it was pointed out to me many times, uh, many small businesses are often uh, uh, transacted or sold to a new buyer by like local real estate agents. And it, uh, like a barbershop, it might be structured as an LLC or something like that. If somebody's retiring, wants to get out of the business, sell it to somebody new, you often go to a real estate agent to kind of help find a buyer. Or, uh, or a barbershop. Or a barbershop, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and, you know, real estate agents facilitate the transactions don't even think about is it a securities transaction or not. So, and, and then you think about um, very sophisticated, large um, buyers and sellers of businesses as such. And you may have uh, someone kind of placed uh, a buyer in touch with a seller of a business where the parties are very sophisticated and, and you step back and look at this and say, well, do we really need SEC broker-dealer regulation in these circumstances? Does it make sense? Importantly, is there like widespread, like just flaunting of the law if, we, if they are supposed to be broker-dealer? That's not good either. So these facts like were presented to us uh, a number of times and we decided like, we were gonna settle them. And we did, we think through the, the uh, M&A broker letter, which says if you're dealing, if you're 
facilitating the purchase or sale of a private company. So it's not it's not applicable to purchases of public companies. It's only for purchases of private companies. And the purchase is a controlling block of that company, which means 25% or more of the voting securities of the company. And the buyer or group of buyers is going to be active in managing the company, including just having a board seat, frankly. Uh, in those circumstances, the person facilitating that transaction doesn't need to be registered with the broker with the SEC as a broker deal, even if that person receives a commission, like expressly a mm -hmm. commission. That person doesn't need to be registered with a broker dealer. We do not see the need for SEC oversight in those circumstances, and the no action letter uh, provides relief there. There are like 15 conditions because we couldn't help ourselves. Uh, so, of course, we always put in a lot of conditions. Uh, you can't uh, hold the money or securities as the quote-unquote M&A broker that was important to us. Um, if you've been banned from the securities industry or you're out of luck, you can't rely on this letter to get back in. Um, so a few other conditions like Restricted that. securities, restricted securities, not a public offering. Right. You know, it was important to us that this not translate into the public market. In addition, there can be a shell company, so it's not useful for SPACs uh, for a demerger transaction because neither party can be a shell company, which uh, uh, is defined to include a SPAC. Didn't realize we we're going to have that boom and bust in the SPAC world <laughs> back in 2013. Uh, uh, so, um, but I think very useful. And, and in my practice, I, I see a lot of M&A brokers uh, and others who rely on that letter. One thing to keep in mind is the letter addresses SEC registration. You do need to think about state regulation as well. So at least think about it. Now, most states have institutional carve-outs and, and other types of carve-outs so that you don't need to register separately with the state as a broker-dealer, but you do at least need to think about that if you're relying on that letter. Let's go into that during our remaining time. Uh, what actually does, what, what is entailed with registering to be a broker? Because we've talked about kind of like people trying not to be a broker. Well, why are people trying not to be a broker? We both get the question of, well, what do I need to do to be a yeah. broker? So when people ask you that, what's your response? It, it is radically different than being an investment advisor. First of all, many VC investment advisors obviously don't need to register. They may be exempt reporting advisors with the SEC, but uh, uh, there's an exemption, obviously, for venture capital advisors. But if you're registered as an investment advisor, for the most part, you fill out your form ADD, uh, you file it, um, and you're registered 30 to 45 days later with the SEC. Um, for broker-dealers, vastly different. To be a broker-dealer registered with the, with the SEC, you fill out Form BD. That piece of it looks like investment advisor registration. But if you're, if you're doing business as a broker-dealer, with very limited exceptions, you must become a member of FINRA. And FINRA's uh, membership process is very onerous. First of all, um, and this is the main stumbling block, you have to have a certain number of licensed individuals. Um, the license uh, is required under FINRA rules, and to get the license, it's you have to take tests, and they're real tests. They're not easy tests. Uh, the, the core license is a Series 7 license um, uh, to be a, a licensed representative of a broker-dealer. And I've never done it personally, but I've advised a number of uh, individuals who have, and they, they study for it for like a summer. I don't think it's as bad as the bar exam, but it's, it's a real exam that requires you to study. That's the, the license to be able to operate as a registered representative, but the broker-dealer itself must have 
supervisors as well. That's an additional license to, to be a supervisor. Typical license is a Series 24. The Series 24 requires the person to have a Series 7 and then to take the exam to be a supervisor to get the Series 24 license. Now, if it's just one person, though, do they need to have a super? I mean, will they be supervising themselves? Yeah, you could have a sole proprietorship uh, and you would effectively supervise yourself, but you still have to have those those licenses. And, you know, if it's a sole sole proprietorship, you know, where do you find the time for a business like that right. to get the licenses? So that that's a meaningful difference between investment advisor and broker deal uh, registration and regulation. Then the process at FINRA is, you know, I, I used to say six to nine months and now say, like, think about seven to 11 months. And FINRA will want to see bank accounts like they want evidence of your bank accounts they want formation documents for the broker dealer entity they want to see your lease to see that you actually have office space or at least know that you're working from your home if you're a, a, a sole proprietorship theory for one of ours they asked for investor bank accounts which was kind of crazy i don't know why they got that far but they were asking uh, people had made an investment into the broker and then they asked for uh, uh, bank accounts for the investors well, that that's problematic to my mind. I hope you push back, but at, but at the end of the day, it's a regulator, so you can only yeah, push right. back. So yeah. they, they also want to know all of the owners and indirect owners of the broker, and we'll, we'll bet them, and that may have been how, you, how your investors got picked up. So they want yeah. to know all 5% or greater owners and then all 25% or greater indirect owners, and they'll, they'll want to do a lot of background information with those people. And then, you know, once you've run the gauntlet through FINRA, your membership allows you to do a certain business. They approve, like if you're an investment advisor, you can do, and you're registered or, or exempt from registering appropriately exempt, you can do whatever an investment advisor is allowed to do. For a broker dealer, FINRA approves you for lines of businesses, usually private placement in, in this space. And that means you can do private placements, but you can't do uh, an underwriting syndicate um, uh, or, or or go out and do a mutual fund uh, uh, sale. Uh, you're approved for a specific line of business, and if you want to, if you want to change your line of business or add one, you have to go and go through that seven to eleven month process again with FINRA. It's it's just a radically different process. And then just to fill out the story, there's obviously capital requirements for brokers. The regulation of brokers is, is different than investment advisors. But one key area of difference is FINRA shows up, you know, regularly to examine a broker-dealer. The SEC has a numbers issue. They have like 15,000 uh, investment advisors uh, and about 1,200 examiners, so they can't examine all investment advisors regularly so that you have a risk-based uh, approach. FINRA will show up six months after you become a FINRA member, two years, and then at least at once every four years, you will have a FINRA examination. That's required under FINRA wow. rules. FINRA is a regulated entity itself that must abide by its rules. So it will have you will have an exam once you get to that four-year schedule at least once every four years. Yeah, not always a fun process having a regulator show up the day the regulator is there. It's a red letter day for for, <laughs> but maybe not for good reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much, David. Uh, next time we'll get into state broker dealer registration, so <laughs> we'll uh, uh, which will probably take as long as this this took. Um, last question: Do you see yourself going back into public service? Uh, I, I'm a great admirer of all of our public servants. My my wife, Carrie. Uh, has even more years uh, at the SEC in, in public service than I do. 
my, my suspicion is I am done with public service. <laughs> Uh, I, I enjoy some of the benefits of being in the private sector, and uh, it, it, it's it's a tough it's a tough decision to go back into private into public service. Maybe at the end of my career, um, uh, who knows? You can never say never. But uh, I'm I'm happy out in the in the in the private sphere these days. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on today's program, David. We uh, hope to have you back again, and uh, enjoy the rest of your, enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law, brought to you by the American Bar Association. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.